You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you four messages Chuck Colson presented at MBI Founders Week between 1981 and 2003. Then we'll close the week with his message at the Washington, D.C. Leadership Conference 1988. Chuck Colson was a Christian leader who founded Prison Fellowship and Breakpoint after serving as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Now, here is Chuck Colson on Today in the Word Radio. I'm honored to be here today for several reasons. First, my enormous respect for George Sweeting and the Moody Bible Institute and, of course, this church. I couldn't say anything else, surrounded as I am in my office by Moody men. Matter of fact, George's son spent a year with us as an intern. Around there, he was known as, as the, most places he's known as the son of George Sweeting. Around there, George Sweeting is known as the father of Don Sweeting. And of course, my great respect. I'm kind of a student of history, and I have read so much of D.L. Moody and the magnificent ministry he had evangelizing over two You've continents. You've been listening to the really Today in the Word the radio podcast he led and a message titled Leadership in the American Church of the that Chuck Colson presented at the Washington, D.C. Leadership so for Conference all of those reasons, in 1988. Chuck Colson was here a with Christian you today. leader who founded Prison Fellowship with, and Breakpoint after serving as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Join us again next week when we bring you a series of Today we finished Howard two days Subedin of board meetings in Washington the life and mission of Jesus Prison Fellowship Christ International, at Gold Lake, Michigan of our ministry Bible abroad, Conference, 1979. Put on the plane to send back today to in the Belfast. Today, Radio is a production a of Moody Christian Radio, brother by the name of William a ministry Fitch, of the Moody Bible came Institute. came because our ministry is beginning there in Northern Ireland. And so you can imagine this morning to pick up the Chicago Tribune and to read of the terrible threats of confrontation and bloodshed and renewed violence in Northern Ireland that is expected momentarily, how much it weighed upon my heart as I read that article. I had thought things were getting better. I must tell you, my wife, Patty, and I were over there just a few months ago for the opening of the film Born Again, which was being shown in downtown Belfast. Magnificent occasion. 1,200 people came out, Protestants and Catholics, one of the few times that they gathered in the heart of Belfast, police all around and British soldiers, but the most magnificent demonstration of the unity of the body of Christ, even in an area where people on two sides of the main road were still shooting at one another. I have uh, come to discover these past seven years that the Christian life is filled with paradoxes. A little while ago, I had a lesson, a spiritual lesson, a very deep one, that I suspect will remain with me the rest of my ministry. One of those paradoxes. Like so many states across the Union, the state of Delaware, has incredible prison problems. The governor happens to be a friend of mine, Pete DuPont, and he called me up one day in the summer of 1979. He said, Chuck, would you come over and take a look at our prisons and walk through them and tell me what we ought to do with this prison? 800 men jammed in way over the capacity for which it was built. And I went over one hot summer day, walked through that prison every nook and cranny into the segregation unit, into the medical unit, where one inmate was chained to the bunk because he was so violent they could do nothing else with him. He kept breaking the chains every day, and the blood was running down his wrists and his ankles. Went in and talked to the man in the solitary, the hole, they call it. And then as I was leaving, I said to the chaplain, I'd like to meet the Christian inmates here. Could you assemble them so I can talk with them? 800 men in that prison, he got eight fellows together, which... For a place like Delaware, it was not unusual. That's about what we normally find when we first go into a prison. 
We stood around the table. Seven of the eight men were lifers, and we had the most magnificent fellowship for half an hour or so. And then we joined hands, and we prayed. And I left that prison, but I couldn't forget those men. And I started to think about them over the next few months and got some wonderful letters from them. And so we scheduled a seminar. As Dr. Sweeting mentioned, uh, part of our ministry, a major thrust of our ministry, is to go into prisons and to put on week-long seminars. And we invite the whole prison population to come, and many will, who are non-believers, many Muslims, many atheists. This time, we put on a seminar in Delaware. We had 100 men come out. It was a great seminar, as a matter of fact, because 75 that week made first-time professions of faith in Christ. Something happened, if you receive our little newsletter, that made that seminar, I think, particularly memorable. That is, a young man, 20 years old, was called in in the middle of the seminar. The judge who had sentenced him called him into the courthouse, had him brought down to the courthouse by two policemen and taken in. And the judge said to him, young man, I have studied your sentence and your institutional conduct, and I have decided, as an act of mercy, to reduce your sentence to time served. You can go home today. Young man looked up at the judge. He said, Your Honor, if it's all the same to you, I'd like to stay the rest of the week in prison and finish the prison fellowship seminar. <clears throat> That's commitment. We heard such wonderful things happening out of Delaware that I decided to go back there and spend Easter Sunday morning, the Easter Sunday service there. I pick one prison each year. It'll be Nebraska this year, where the fellowship seems to be thriving and where I can encourage them on that great day of victory. I arrived early Easter morning, was met at the gate by a whole group of volunteers, lay people like yourselves, who had begun working in that prison, taking a Bible study in every week, going in, visiting the inmates one-on-one. -on -one. They had the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, the Treasurer of the State of Delaware, many state senators, the head of corrections. They had brought a lot of government officials with them, and it was a great thing. We went in and had breakfast with the small corps of Christian inmates that was now about 70 men in the, one of the prison mess halls. During that breakfast, a man stood up, inmate. He said, I've written a poem. I'd like to read it this morning. His name was Sam Castlevera. Sam is doing life with no hope of parole. And he began to read this poem. And I love poetry. I think I've read most of the great classics. But I've never heard a poem that moved me more than Sam's. He said, I heard you were coming to worship once more with souls who were floundering when you came before. We had direction but needed a push. You made us a promise and also a wish. Your promise was kept, prison fellowship you sent. Whatever I write can't tell you what it meant. Someone who, some who attended made your wish come true. They gave their life to Jesus, as you did too. Went on for several verses and very simple poetry. But Sam, about halfway through it, couldn't finish because Great big tears began to roll down this tough guy's face, and I had to go up and read the rest of the poem that he had written dedicated to me. We then walked across the prison compound, and it's about 300 yards from the mess hall of the prison over to the chapel. And as I looked in the distance, I could see men all parading around the chapel with these great, huge homemade placards. I thought, oh, no, shades of trying to get into the White House during the Vietnam years. Maybe there's an atheist demonstration or somebody is trying to block us from using the chapel. I got over closer where I could see the signs and they read, Jesus sets the prisoners free. Come to the chapel today. The Christian inmates had gone out and were parading around with these great big homemade placards bringing the rest of the prison out. About 300 men in that prison were in solitary confinement and couldn't come out. 
They were locked in their solitary cells. And so the Christian inmates had gone up on the roof of the chapel and had put four speakers in all four directions and huge amplifiers so that the morning service could be heard all through the prison. And judging by the size of the speakers, I think it could be about two miles around the prison as well. <clears throat> I began to speak that morning. It was just packed out. Chapel was full. There where I had been eight months earlier and found just a handful of Christian inmates, now I saw this church excited, throbbing, alive, and Jesus Christ on the faces of men who had been utterly lost without hope, that joy of a new life in their face. And as I began to preach, the only thing I could think of was the incredible paradox. I looked back on my own life. I thought of all the good things I had ever done. Scholarships I'd won to college, youngest company commander in the United States Marines, argued a case that went to the Supreme Court of the United States where I won and it made landmark law, wrote many statutes in the United States Senate. In the White House, I participated in some of the great decisions of the day that I thought would affect our country profoundly for generations and generations to come. I looked back on all the good things I had done in my life and realized that they hadn't really touched the lives of anyone, but that the most significant thing about my life is that I was a convict who went to prison because God had been able to use that to touch the lives of perhaps thousands of people who might find a new life out of absolute hopelessness in prison. The most significant and important thing about my life was the one defeat I ever experienced. The only thing I didn't want to do, the only thing I fought hard against, I used to grab those bars in that prison and say, God, get us out of here. We're wasting our time in this prison. It happens to be the one thing that a sovereign God chooses to reach down, intervene in the affairs of man and history, and to take a defeat and suffering and adversity and use it for his glory and ignore the things we think are good, the things that we ourselves will glory in. That's the paradox of being a Christian, upside down. The things we think are good, nothing in the passing moment of eternity, but the things God chooses to use of our life. And if that is correct, the most significant and important thing is not the great designs and strategies we develop, but it is the faithfulness of our heart. Great is thy faithfulness, the theme of this conference. Our obedience to Jesus Christ in our lives is the single most important thing we can ever do. The second thing I saw that morning, you know, we'd gone into that prison with volunteers, with Bible studies. I'd preached there, had a magnificent experience that morning. We'd done a lot of teaching. We'd had everything that you can think about. And I sort of looked out and I said, well, what is prison fellowship? What is this? Sure, it's teaching and preaching and caring and helping and all of these things, but it's more than that. It's the invisible kingdom of God being made visible before our eyes. And my friends, my brothers and sisters, that is the challenge of our times, that we make the invisible kingdom of God visible, that all might see the glory of God lived out in our lives. To see the church come alive in a pit of despair and helplessness. Love reading Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I've been reading his second memoirs, Gulag Archipelago Number 2, where he talks about the first stirrings of good in his life. 
came in that prison when he lay there on that rotting prison straw, when he realized that the line between good and evil is not between kingdoms of this world, but through the human heart, and when he said he could begin to appreciate for the first time what it really meant to be part of the building of God's kingdom. It happens, curiously enough, paradoxically enough, in the places we least expect, not in the temples of power, but maybe where the church is under persecution and oppression, maybe that's where God begins to reach down and the Holy Spirit moves so powerfully. Recently, a survey in Leningrad. There, after 60 years of oppression, persecution of the church, atheism, the official religion of the state, God driven out of the Soviet culture, the Soviet government recently provided a survey in Leningrad and found that 35% of the people said they were believers. See, government can't quench that spirit. And that spirit is what begins to build God's kingdom on this earth. It's crucial right now that those of us who follow Christ have the courage to begin to be part of the building of God's kingdom to make manifest and visible in this sick and dying world the glory of the kingdom of God, the invisible kingdom. It's crucial because we live in a time, speaking of paradoxes, that is perhaps the most paradoxical of all. We live in a time of religious outpouring and moral decadence. One out of five Americans say that they go to Bible study or prayer fellowship meeting at least once a week outside of church. Good news. Church attendance after a decline of almost 20 years has begun up. Good news. 50 million adult Americans say they are born again. Good news, I guess. They know what they mean. That term has become such a cliche since I first entitled my first book, Born Again. Born Again has been used for everything. Old antique automobiles, football teams, I expect to walk into a, into a store one day and see born-again perfume next to my sin on the perfume counter. <laughs> 50 million adult Americans born again. 31 million Americans, George Gallup in a poll through Christianity Today, asking a whole series of questions. George Gallup says you can classify 31 million Americans, 4 million of them Roman Catholic, 31 million Americans as evangelical. Good news. 84% of the American people believe the Ten Commandments are valid for our lives today. Good news. But at the very same time in this country in which we live, we have pornography ablight upon our cities and our youth. We have abortion going rampant. 500,000 teenage girls getting abortions in this country last year. We have homosexuality being debated as the norm in our great denominations. Lord, save us. We have moral decay and decadence, the highest, prison, highest crime rate in the Western world, the third highest prison population per capita. We put more people in prison as a percentage of population in this country than any other nation on earth except Soviet Union and South Africa. And you spend $2,500 a year to put a young person through Moody Bible Institute, it's $20,000 a year to keep them in prison here in Illinois almost 10 times as much, eight times as much. Think about that waste compared to the investment 
you can make in an education in the Bible Institute. All the good news of people being Christian in a morally sick society. How is that possible? There's your real paradox. Gallup, after conducting, George Gallup, after conducting all these surveys, said he could sum it up this way. Religion is up, morality is down. The secular world would have abundant evidence that religion is not greatly affecting our lives. You see, we are today, I say tragically because I'm in full-time ministry and this applies to me as well as anyone in this room, we are practitioners of what society sees as irrelevant. And that must begin to stop. We must begin to do something about it. Leader of a third world country came up to me after the National Prayer Breakfast two years ago. He said, Mr. Colson, I'd like to talk to you. He said, I've been watching you and certainly I begin to believe Jesus is alive in you. I wish I had that Jesus. I said, well, come talk to me. Let me sit down and explain it to you. Oh, no, no. He said, I couldn't be a Christian. I'd like to know your Jesus, but I couldn't be a Christian. I said, what do you mean? Well, he said, you see, in our country, we look at the United States of America, and we see the family breaking up and decaying, and we see pornography, and we see immorality. No, 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 he said, I couldn't afford to be a Christian like America. He said, the Confucianists are far more moral than you Americans. No, I'd like to know your Jesus. I can't be a Christian. That is what a great Presbyterian scholar friend of mine calls cosmic treason. Because we are not making our witness upon the society in which we live. Society says don't get involved. Do your own thing. Take care of yourself. My wife Patty and I were watching television recently going to bed one night and Hughes Rudd came on, whom I happen to know, a CBS newsman. And he told the most incredible story. He had come home late at night after putting on the CBS Late News. You see him at late at night anytime you turn on CBS. And he was let off at his taxi at his home on the east side of New York. And he paid the cab driver and he stepped out of the cab. And four scruffy looking young lads came up and surrounded him and said, give us your money. And he did. He gave him the wallet. And then one of them took the pistol that he was holding and beat him over the head. And Hughes Rudd fell into the gutter and lay there just a few steps from his home. But he had a concussion, as he later discovered, and he couldn't get up. And so for seven hours, fashionable east side of New York, he lay on that street saying that it was like a, like a ghost being detached from his own body because he could see himself lying there. He knew he was lying there. He was conscious, semi-conscious. He couldn't do anything about it. And a whole parade of people kept going by him. Milkman, people coming home from parties, people getting up and getting dressed and going out to work on an early shift. They kept going by him. And he would say, help me, help me. And they'd look down, they'd shrug, they'd look the other way, they'd pretend they didn't see him. No one in seven hours even went over and said, can I help you up? Till his wife finally got the police, worried about her husband. They came and found him at seven the next morning. That's a tragic commentary on our times, isn't it? But it is what the culture says. Don't get involved. We tell our young people, don't get involved. Might, something might happen to you. Well, my friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ, summing it up in its essence, says, get involved. It's the opposite of the value structure of this culture in which we live. One of the problems I'm convinced 
the longer I've been a Christian, is that we take the great command that we are given, scripture verse that all of you know by heart, last words that our Lord gave his apostles before he ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father, after he was crucified and resurrected and had come back for those 40 days with his disciples, he turned to them before he left and to leave them alone, his very last words, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. That is not an option. That's not a command that Jesus says, do it if you feel like it or if you're not too shy. I was in Germany recently and at a leadership meeting of government officials and businessmen in Bonn, and one of the men listened to me talk, and he came up with me afterwards, a former admiral in the Navy and a prominent government official. He said in his very heavy accent, he said, I feel just like you do inside. But he said, I would never tell anyone. He said, my faith is very strong, but very private. Isn't that all right? I said, brother, if it's so private that you can't confess it to another man, it's no faith at all. You see, it's obligatory that we be witnesses. But now what does it mean to be a witness? I sometimes think that we evangelical Christians equate testimony and witness as being one and the same. You know, for three years as a Christian, everywhere I would go, I was, of course, famous. And my face was on the front page of newspapers and television. So people would always come to me and they'd say, give us your testimony. But you begin to realize that, yes, we ought to proclaim it. We ought to confess it. We confess it with our mouth, and Jesus will confess us before God Almighty. And we must confess our, the faith that is within us and the hope of eternity in us. But it's not enough to be a witness for Christ just to confess our faith. Giving our testimony one to another is not the be-all, end-all of the Christian life. Well, a lot of Christians begin to get serious about how they're going to live. And that's a witness, too. You know, the Apostle Paul said, if, eating, if, if food causes my brother to stumble, I shall not eat meat. And we begin to care about how we live because the righteousness with which we live is part of that witness, isn't it? The gentleness, the compassion, the care, the loving of our neighbors. No harsh talk. No drunkenness. We must live in a way that is exemplary of the righteousness that Jesus brings into our lives. And that becomes kind of a second phase of our witness. I'm always amused when I'm driving along and I see a car come whistling by me. It's got a great big bumper on the sticker, bumper sticker on the back fender. It says, honk if you love Jesus. And then it cuts in in front of three other people. The horns start going. And I always imagine that fellow sitting there saying, look at all those people who love Jesus. You know, they're just <laughs> afraid of being driven off the road. That's not a good witness. But how we live and what we do is a witness. But I'm convinced, my friends, that there is a third step. And it brings me to the point of my remarks today. It's what I call the great divide. It's what happens when a, suddenly, as a Christian, you realize that you're not only to tell people about Jesus with your mouth, you're not only to show people righteousness in your life, but you're to begin to try to be like Jesus, which is what the word Christian means, of or like Christ. There comes that moment of dawning upon us 
When we say to be Christian, I've got to do more than tell about him. I've got to start to be like him. He tells me that if I want to follow him, I must deny myself, pick up my cross, and follow. He tells me in Matthew 25 what will happen on that great day of judgment. And my rank in the kingdom may depend upon how well I cared for the poor and the hungry and the naked and the imprisoned. He tells me to be as a prisoner as if I were in prison at their side. He tells me to care and to carry the burdens of those around me. And then I see that I must be part like those inmates in that prison in Delaware of making the invisible kingdom visible for man to see with his eyes. I must be the opposite of the culture of this world. I must be unlike all of those people that walk those streets of New York by Hughes Rudd. I must reach out and say, brother, can I give you a hand? Toughest thing in the world in a prison. You never get involved in a prison. Atlanta Penitentiary, 11 men were killed within 16 months. And the significant thing, I read the report on every one of them, wasn't a single witness, and every man died alone. Nobody's going to reach over and try to pick up someone in a prison because they'll be next. Our disciples do. Santa Fe riot where men were being massacred. The Christians from prison fellowship went back in and out with stretcher brigades, taking out bodies, including saving the life of a guard. It's obligatory. You shall be my witnesses. It means you shall live that gospel like Jesus lived it. You shall get involved. You have no choice. Marvelous illustration of that right here in Chicago. A few months ago, one of our regional men was walking through the Walla Walla Penitentiary, where I will be tomorrow and covet your prayers because it's such a terribly troubled place. Been many riots there, men barricaded and solitary. Al Elliott was walking through the center of that prison, and one of the great big inmates, great big tall lad, a black man by the name of Benny, was leaning against a wall, and Benny said, Hey, Al. Benny had been a head of a motorcycle gang, converted to Christ, had become a strong Christian leader. He said, hey, Al, tell Colson i got to get out of here. Al sort of laughed. He went over to Benny. He said, Benny, we can't get you out of here. You know that. But he said, what is your problem, brother? Can we help you out? Benny said, well, you see, I can put up with this terrible place we live, but, and I can put up with all the stabbings and the brutality and the horror of this prison, but the truth is I haven't seen my wife in six years, and it's tearing me apart. She lives in Chicago. She doesn't have the money to come out and see me. Al got to his room that night and picked up the telephone and called Rich and Mary Valair, who live here in Chicago. They may be here today. If they're here in the crowd, they're going to be very embarrassed because they, they didn't want any credit for this. They were doing their duty, as they later told me. But they went that very next night from Elmhurst into the south side of this city, where very few people from the white suburbs go into the, one of the tougher ghetto areas. They found Benny's wife, sure enough, lovely Christian woman, four children. She was working at two jobs to keep him clothed and fed. They had a marvelous night of fellowship with him. They came back. They called Al. They said, tell Benny his wife is all right. But they couldn't sleep. The lawyers aren't wealthy people, but they went down the next day to their travel agent, put out several hundred dollars of their own money, and bought a round-trip ticket from Chicago to Spokane. Two weeks later, when Benny and his wife were reunited, the witness inside that prison was explosive. Men coming up saying, Benny, your wife came out here. How come? 
And he could say, because Christians care. He called our office that next day, got permission to use the phone. Couldn't get through the conversation. He said, Al, thank you, thank you. I never thought anyone cared, least of all a white man. You see what that is? That is the gospel. I could preach in that prison 50 times and not have that effect. I could hand out 10,000 tracts and not have that effect. Those men living in that forlorn pit of violence and hatred and anger could look and say, someone does care because Christ is in them. It's the duty of the Christian to get involved. A lot of people say to me, well, go preach the gospel. Yes, we do. Uncompromised. I believe in the absolute infallible truth of this book, and this is what changes people's lives, nothing else. But I'm also going to get involved with his human need. I think always of that magnificent story in 400 AD after the coming of Christ. In Rome, little Asiatic Asian monk by the name of Telemachus, maybe many of you know this story, was sitting in his lonely cell meditating. He felt God was saying to him, Telemachus, go to Rome. He thought to himself, what do I want to do in Rome? But if God wants me there, I'll go. And so he took all of his worldly possessions, put them in his little bag, threw it over his, over his shoulder, and started down the long, dusty roads westward to Rome. Little short monk, Telemachus. He got into Rome and he heard all the hustle and bustle and confusion and excitement in the streets. And he said, what's going on? Someone said, oh, this is the day in the Colosseum. The amphitheater today, we have gladiators. Animals killing animals, animals killing men, men killing animals, and men killing men for the glory of Caesar. The little monk said, maybe that's why God wants me here. And he went down and sat, took his seat way down front in this amphitheater, 80,000 people. And as the athletes came out and the gladiators came out and the animals were let out, the gladiators would come by saying, hail to Caesar. And then the fighting and the bloodshed began. The little monk was sitting there, no place to go to preach. Nothing he could say, and so he did the only thing a Christian could do. He jumped over the parapet, out into the field, and ran out in between these two huge gladiators coming at one another with swords. And in a weak, squeaky voice, he yelled out, In the name of Christ, forbear! They laughed. Laughter rippled around the amphitheater, 80,000 people strong. The gladiators came rushing at one another, almost ignoring the little monk, sent him spinning off. Then the crowd began to chant, run him through, run him through. And he stood up again and he said, in the name of Christ, forbear. One of the gladiators came over, took the back of his sword and slapped him into the dust and he went spinning. But as he lay there, he yelled, in the name of Christ, forbear. The second gladiator went over, took his sword and ran it through Telemachus's stomach and the blood began to run out of the sand. And his body was wiggling, and his last words were, In the name of Christ, forbear. Cheers went up from the amphitheater. But up in the upper tier, one man stood up and walked out. Seconds later, four or five others stood up and walked out. Within minutes, the amphitheater had ended, emptied, and it was the last known gladiatorial contest in the history of Rome. 
Christians, get involved. You will make a difference. That is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Live it proudly. Take it into the fallen world in which we live. God bless you. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Chuck Colson presented at MBI Founders Week between 1981 and 2003. Chuck Colson was a Christian leader who founded Prison Fellowship and Breakpoint after serving as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.